I think Rosemary's going to read for us. Our first reading can be followed on page 697 of the Pew Bibles. It is taken from Isaiah, chapter 42, verses 1 to 9. The servant, a light to the nations. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his teaching. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to idols. See, The former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The second reading can be followed on page 3, the New Testament section of the Pew Bibles. It is taken from Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. The Baptism of Jesus. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I gather there's some youth activities going on on either side in the Epiphany Chapel and the Fellowship area. If anybody hasn't moved yet, now's the chance to move. Sorry, that's for the young people. (laughs) I'm going to keep an eye on you. And now for an old one. Um, 
Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, as we begin this new year, we so want to be a church community that glorifies you in the way we conduct our corporate and individual lives. Help us through your word today to see how we can become better servants of your plan and purpose for this parish and this island where you've placed us. Amen. Our theme today, the second in the Who is Jesus series, is entitled The Father's Son, taken from the end of our reading in Matthew 3, which records the baptism of Jesus. And just to set that scene, this chapter introduced John the Baptist as a voice of one calling in the desert, we are told, prepare the way for the Lord. His message was simple. Repent, literally be repenting, a continuous tense, which is why we confess our sins every time we meet, not just a one-off. Repent, he said, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And we are told that people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea, and confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. And John issued this warning to those whom he sensed were not truly penitent. In verse 11 he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It was the job of the lowest slave in households at that time to wait at the front door, welcome guests, take their sandals and wash their feet. And so John is saying, I'm not even fit to carry Jesus' sandals, let alone touch him or wash his feet. In a fast-moving account, two verses on, Matthew writes for the beginning of our reading, then arrives Jesus from Galilee to be baptized by John, but John would have hindered him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? It's not opposition, as John had shown earlier with those whom he discerned had just joined the crowds and weren't really willing to repent. No, this is understandable reluctance, aware as he is of his own sinfulness and also that Jesus was the only person who had no need of baptism. But in verse 15, Jesus says in a serene and confident way, permit it now for it is fitting. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying to John in an authoritative but kindly way, I agree with what you say. You're not actually fit to carry my sandals because of the difference between us. But because of it, you can permit this. Because it is the right way for me to begin my great mission. Jesus, of course, has no need to be baptised. He was without sin. 
but he chooses to connect himself in this way with all the other cases of baptism which are needed and which his finished work will make effective. So this rite of baptism is the way Jesus enters upon that great office. And Martin Luther commented that after his baptism and its acknowledgement by God, which we'll come on to in a second, Jesus actually becomes the Christ. He enters into his messiahship. So John permits this baptism, and when Jesus went up out of the water, we are told, heaven opened, and the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Tender words from a proud father, depicting a scene, incidentally, which is one of the best examples of the Trinity. The Son on the bank of the River Jordan, the Spirit as a dove descending from heaven, and alighting and staying upon Jesus, and the Father speaking from heaven. A world-changing scene. Jesus, the human Son of God, offering himself for the great task of the world's salvation, and his Father from heaven lovingly accepting and indeed anointing him for that work, telling the onlookers and through their faithful record generations down to us that he was pleased with his boy and that he loved him in such a deep and intense way that the Greeks who were transcribing the New Testament had to invent a new word for it, agape, the highest form of love, one involving full comprehension and a corresponding purpose. So thus, Jesus embarks on his great mission. But we can learn more about him from another prophet who wrote hundreds of years before John as we turn to our reading from Isaiah chapter 42, which begins boldly, Behold my servant. He belongs to God. Whom I uphold... So a servant sustained by his master, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. It doesn't say the plan is to bring justice, or we hope he will bring justice. He will bring justice. His mission which we've just seen Jesus accept, may seem impossible to us in our secular world, but it will succeed. Now you'd think he'd need to use considerable force to achieve that aim. Not so. In contrast to the self-styled strong men we see around the world today who shout or tweet loudly and beat their chests, this servant we are told, will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. He'll go about his work quietly, speaking softly his words of truth. And we see in verse 3 that his mission is to bring blessing. So a bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick 
he will not snuff out. Unlike some in power today, Jesus will not take advantage of the weak, the downtrodden, the damaged, the hurting. Rather, in faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He won't trample or use people to achieve his goal, even though from verse 4, it's clear that there will be difficulties implied in the words, he will not falter or be discouraged. And it's so important for us, his followers, his servants, to grasp that he won't grow weak or be daunted by opposition, even though we might. Until he establishes justice on earth. The sense from the Hebrew there is of weight, of of firmly placing justice It's not going to budge once he's set it in place. And it's going to exist throughout the world, the whole earth. No boundaries. Justice sans frontiere, we might say. And I find that so encouraging, and I hope you do. And I hope also many who have been denied justice in various ways will find comfort in that strong and unequivocal prophecy. Verse 5 goes on to reinforce the power of this message by reminding us that the Lord who created the whole universe is the one who called this servant in righteousness, meaning that there was a genuine selection, a calling of this servant, involving no doubt the consideration and rejection of other possibilities, of other candidates. And this process was all done in righteousness. Of course, it could be no other way for the Lord. That's how he operates. So from the very outset, this servant's mission is based on God's righteousness, which is nothing less than absolute justice, justice you can rely on. And again, That is bound to be in contrast to the systems of justice the world offers, even though some of them purport to be based on the Bible. Verse 6, I will take hold of your hand. What a tender expression that is, and a simple and lovely thing holding hands can be. It speaks of protection, doesn't it? Of tenderness. But also, of course, here, there is the implication that danger stalks this servant, that there are forces ranged against him to prevent him from succeeding. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people. This servant is the covenant, the pact, the treaty, if you like, between God and his people, just as Jesus would later describe himself as the truth. And I've always found it ironic that when Jesus stood before the powerful Pontius Pilate and answered his assertion, are you a king then, with the words, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked, when truth 
was standing right in front of him. In the same way, Isaiah prophesied that the servant would be the covenant, embodying all its potential, all its promise, all its blessing. He would also be a light for the Gentiles, the nations, the rest of the world. The servant would be the light and not just provide the light. Verse 7 tells us how the servant's mission will work out in practice. He will open eyes that are blind. Not necessarily physical blindness, more those whose sin blinds them to reality. Again, we see examples of that, don't we, in the world around us with leaders and politicians today whose ideology blinds them to reality and truth. But before we rush to condemn, we should be mindful that we all have blind spots, about 2.6 each on average, apparently. To free captives from prison, not literally, necessarily, although our strong men, of course, maintain power, often by locking up the opposition or worse. All kinds of things can hold us in prison, can't they? Greed, ambition, work, hatred, revenge. And this servant's task is to break the chains that hold people and to bring his presence, light itself and truth, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. An obvious point about prison, of course, is by its very nature, once inside, it's almost impossible to get yourself out. You need someone outside to deliver you. We see that in the daily work of of Grace Trust, and I know Rosemary and Tony and all at Ece Homo would see that in Romania with the folk they help there who are caught in a spiral of poverty and despair and need help from outside to try to break free or even have a respite. And the same with Christians Against Poverty, with Malcolm and his team and the people they're helping here, caught in the spider's web of debt, especially credit card debt with its usurious interest rates. Those folk are in need of experienced and caring outsiders to help them. Verse 8 moves on from the gentleness and love of this servant to his master. A little reminder that while the servant's work is indeed carried out in a quiet, low-key way, it is nevertheless a work of conquest. He is going to free all those kept in darkness, whether through fear or intimidation, prisoners all of a wily enemy. But one of the many marvellous mysteries of this servant is that although he actually needs no help, he graciously invites us to join in and indeed become an integral part of his mission. What a privilege and how exciting for us at St Juan and St George as Ian hinted at last week that there will be news about how we can reflect 
the servant's light into any dark places in the lives of people in our lovely parish and beautiful island. And as we begin this new year, a new decade, wait expectantly for the words of verse 9 to come to fruition. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. How exciting. I'm excited, and I'm 69, so, you know, it's wonderful. Amen. Um, I've got a little treat for you now, and I'd like Mark, first of all, to put the words of this um, up on the screen, that we can just have a look at them um, first. It's, um, it's something I came across recently through a Christmas present, actually. It was um, uh, the um, Christchurch Oxford uh, College Choir. And um, uh, this is um, an excerpt from a New Zealand composer, Francis Greer's Cantata about the Canterbury Pilgrims and it includes this hauntingly beautiful My Breath Lies Quiet and the words I felt were very fitting to to today's theme of servanthood but as I pondered them they reminded me that actually being a servant of Christ can and should be a beautiful thing and uh, I hope you like the music, so over to you, Julie. Thank you. (laughs) 